business class listeners, kicking off the episode is a tune that's going to put you in the mood. the jam right there i know you can't see obviously what i'm doing but man i was i was doing a little slow seductive salsa to this song right here this is ruben brandsburg and this is kind of one of the tragedies sometimes about music i love this tune i i was hoping to find a lot of other songs by this particular artist but unfortunately this is the only song he's ever done at least published Ruben Brandsburg, I mean, check out his bio here. Ruben Brandsburg was born in Buenos Aires and immigrated to Israel in 1978 with his family. He served in the military band and then continued his musical training at the Jerusalem Academy of Music. And I love this tune. This is a great little jam. This is called El Rio Fluye, The Flowing River. Again, by Ruben Brandsburg. On Spotify, he only has about 800 followers. Again, he's only... He's only produced, published this one particular song. But the dude is like, he looks like he's probably in his 50s or so. So you know he's a seasoned professional. Ruben, if somehow you get to hear this episode, man, please produce another song. I would love to hear it. Anyhow, business class listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is the podcast by automotive executives for automotive entrepreneurs Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you regular listeners of the show. And I do want to welcome some of the new listeners that have come on board. You know, tune in for the education, stay for the investments. That's the best thing I can guarantee that you will get out of this show. On this particular episode, on this particular episode, I get to be taken around the globe. I get a virtual tour of the automotive export business. On a previous episode of the show, I had the chance to feature the CEO of IAA, Insurance Auto Auctions, Mr. John Kett. Mr. Kett informed me about what's the haps with IAA, and what that also brought up was the things that they do outside of the United States. When a vehicle here in the U.S. gets into an accident, and all of a sudden the insurance doesn't want to cover that, us as a driver of that car, we more than likely say, well, fine, insurance, if you're not going to cover that car, then take it away from me and cut me a check for the difference. And then I will go out and buy a new car. Well, that car is still somewhat of a good car. There's still some good parts to the car. It still may be somewhat drivable. So what happens? Well, that's exactly the primary charge of my guest he gets to take those cars and export them out to the rest of the world. So he shared a lot of his different experiences of what it's like to go into some of these countries, to talk to some of the local people, and to basically make a case for importing these cars. Super, super interesting. So that's going to be on the show. 
My guest, Dan Oscarson, the vice president of business development at IAA, is going to share with you his journey, his experience of what it's like to run and manage and and help other people in other countries build a dealership, build a life, right? One of the things that cars always do for us individually, it helps increase our income mobility, allows us to get to places faster, allows us to take the job that is a little bit further away from us. So this is all the things that that Dan is involved in. So again, you're in for a good treat on this particular episode. Coming up on the show, be sure you're subscribed to the show. Coming up on the show next week will be a recording I did with Rhett Reichert, who is the dealer principal of Reichert Automotive Group in the state of Ohio. He also was the NADA chairman, past chairman, if you will. And we got into a pretty contentious discussion. One of the areas that it became very contentious on was the conflict between the franchise business model and franchise law. It's a really good one. So be sure you are subscribed to the show so you get the notification on when that episode publishes next week. Also coming up on the show a little bit later, a couple weeks from now. If you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know that I'm all about making the investments. Part of making those investments is I like to follow heavily, scrutinize the stock market, specifically all those stocks that are involved in the automotive space. My one-year rate of return updated as of end of February. My one-year rate of return is 78.19%. I share that number with you, not because I'm bragging, but only to demonstrate that there's a little bit of knowledge that I have about investing. And mind you, I've been doing this for quite some time. My father got me involved about 15 plus years ago. And I've been very active over maybe the last year and a half, two years now. So one of the things that a lot of investors, including myself, have been introduced to, which is not really a brand new introduction of this concept because this has always been around, but certainly if you've been more active in investing recently, this is somewhat new. And that is the introduction of SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. Upcoming on the show, I will be discussing more of SPACs, how they work, what are the risks associated with it. So be sure you are subscribed to the show again so that you can hear more about SPACs and how you could possibly benefit from it. Or if you're like me, you might lose your shit. So don't be like me in that case. Okay. That's like I said earlier, you know, tune in for the education and stay for the investments. Maybe not for me per se, because I will be, I'll bring in some other folks that are experts on this that will help better guide you down the path should you want to invest in SPACs. All right, business class listeners, thank you as always for your listens. Thank you for your support of the show. Now, let's get into the episode with Mr. Dan Oscarson. You are now tuned in to... The Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vítejte, willkommen. 
And welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show where I get to explore with all of my guests how to build an international business in the automotive space. And that's so apropos to today's episode, men, women, and children, I can't tell you. One of the things that we, or let's say not even we, that I do on this show is I only really talk more about U.S. auto business, right? I mean, that's where just a bulk of a lot of the companies that I talk about, a lot of the stocks that I talk about, they're all based in the United States. But obviously there's an entire world out there that gets to benefit from the automakers in Michigan, from the technology companies in Silicon Valley. And so we get to get a little taste of what that is like to go to different parts of the world, different countries, different continents, and see and hear and experience what the auto export business is like. And so, men, women, and children, I'm happy to welcome welcome to the show my guest. Today's guest is the Vice President of Global Business Development at IAA, Insurance Auto Auctions, stock symbol IAA. In his role, he has traveled all across the world to the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, Belarus, Honduras, Ghana, and Nigeria, to name a few. And he's there to develop new market opportunities for buyers of American salvage vehicles. That's right, American salvage vehicles. Car gets into an accident, insurance company doesn't want to pay it. What happens to that car? That car's still pretty good. Someone's going to make use of that, right? As the cliche goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. My guest is a proud cougar from Brigham Young University, here to share his journey on building out an international export business. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Oscarson. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well, Dennis. Thank you. I appreciate the introduction. It's good to be here today. Likewise, I'm, I'm happy you're here. And, and Dan, I must say, I am going to relish in this episode, okay? I'm going to relish in this episode because this is really going to be a form of escapism, right? I don't get to go to some of these countries that you visited. A lot of us don't get to go there. And especially for those of us that like to combine business and pleasure, hopefully we will get a glimpse into your world of traveling to some of these countries, learning about their cultures, seeing how they are responding to American products and services, you know? So I think that's super interesting. Now, I will say, obviously, this is not like I'm shooting out of the dark here, but you attended Brigham Young. You 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 graduated from there. It's easy to infer that you were born and raised Mormon. Yes, that's true. Correct. That's correct. Part of part of being Mormon is you uh, you go on your missions. Can you tell me where did you go on a mission? Does and does that have anything to do with like some of the countries that you've already visited with IAA? You know, Dennis, that's an interesting parallel, and it's interesting that you start there because I feel that um, some of my background in life actually did prepare me for this role that I'm in today. When I was 12 years old, my father was actually asked by our church to take a three-year leave of absence from his job in the retail business and to um, go to the country of Sweden and among other things, run the missionary program in that country. So all these missionaries that you might see around in the white shirts and ties, there were over 200 missionaries there. And uh, he took his family mid-career and went, and we lived in Sweden for three years. And during that time, um, I learned Swedish. I was able to travel to Russia. 
um, and had exposure to another culture, another language, and met a lot of really interesting people at the international school I attended. Now, personally, when I came home, finished high school, I did serve a mission for our church. I served in, of all places, Arizona. So, you know, no great story to tell there other than uh, it was a great experience learning how to relate to all different kinds of people. And I think that's one of the things that has carried me well through my uh, global market development is being able to relate to people, find common ground and meet needs. Certainly part of your travels, as I've been able to research uh, you, you've traveled to places like Ghana and Nigeria. So if there's one thing that those two countries have with Arizona is it's hot. <laughs> that is definitely true. There is no doubt. Well, so Dan, give us a bit of a historical context of the U.S. auto export business so that we can kind of get a frame of mind of, you know, what you what the world that you work in. I sure will. Uh, first of all, let me separate a couple of things. One is there is a new car manufacturing in the United States that may be exported to another country. For example, uh, a Buick may be exported to China and sold as a new car. That's really not the world I live in. I live in the world of the aftermarket product, vehicles that are involved in some kind of an insurance loss or um, lease returns, rental cars that come out of uh, circulation, uh, vehicles that maybe need some work. And when the insurance company decides not to repair those for financial reasons, they are taken to the auction where they're liquidated. Well, obviously in the United States, uh, we manufacture a lot of cars and car assembly is something that we're very accustomed to having here. But if you think about it, Dennis, most countries around the world don't have car manufacturing or assembly in their country. All of their cars have to come from somewhere else. Well, if you think about that, it changes the equation completely. And so people in those countries take their options and say, okay, I'm in Ghana and we don't make a lot of cars here. I need to get a car. Well, I could get one from Europe, but it's going to have a really small engine, maybe a manual transmission, not a lot of safety features, you know, pretty basic. And oh, by the way, it's going to be real expensive because Europe is an expensive economy. Well, buyers have uh, very smartly looked at the U.S. market and they realize that vehicles in the U.S. market are built to um, a higher specification. They're quality vehicles with um, safety features and a lot of creature comforts, frankly, built in that come standard, whereas in other countries that would be an option. And so buyers around the world have looked to the United States for high quality product, um, whether it's uh, Japanese made, German made, US made, but the product that comes to the United States, that US spec, those specifications to which vehicles are built for this market are in high demand. And so the buyers have figured it out, figured out that they can come to our auction and purchase a vehicle that maybe needs a little work, bring it to their country and put that car back together and operate it for another 10 or 15 years. Is there, you know, when we talk about, and, and you could pick a country of your choice here again, listeners, I had mentioned places like Honduras and Jordan and UAE and Ghana and Nigeria. Any trends that you're seeing with regards to the type of vehicle? So I know you mentioned creature comfort, which obviously in the United States, certainly, you know, us Americans were a little bit more higher maintenance, if you will, than than Europeans. And and I can say that, Dan, my wife is European. So, you know, I kind of get a firsthand look at, at those cars. And certainly in Europe, you know, where they are dealing with a lot of these uh, four season uh, 
temperatures. And, you know, when, when it is dirty after it snows, like they don't really need leather and, and leather gets too cold. But here in the United States, I mean, man, leather is almost becoming like a base option on a lot of cars. But are there are there any kinds of, you know, or, or types of vehicles that you're seeing that one country is requesting more so than another? You know, it's interesting because each country is a little bit unique. In other words, each country kind of has its own uh, buying preferences, for example. I can tell you that the Toyota brand, Lexus, Mercedes, these are some top brands globally that are uh, in demand in almost universally across all markets. You know, parts interchange from locally um, driven vehicles. It's easy to get parts. They're easy to work on in many cases. Um, but yet some countries are very specific about what they buy. And uh, for example, in Iraq, they love Jeep. They love to buy the Jeep Cherokee. They, that is just the greatest car. And, and, and they love that. Whereas in other markets, uh, they're maybe not as popular and uh, would not be purchased. So a lot of the vehicles are purchased for the individual country's demand. In Europe, for example, there's a real push to have uh, electric vehicles. Uh, countries like Ukraine and Belarus, Poland uh, have developed their uh, electric grid for charging vehicles across the country. And in fact, in Ukraine, there's zero duty charged to import an all electric car. So it's very cost effective to bring a Tesla or um, uh, a Nissan Leaf or a Fusion or an, you know, an all electric car, they won't pay any import tax. And that vehicle can then be used within that country. So a lot of the import laws regarding um, engine size allowance, uh, the amount of duty that will be charged to bring the car in um, and market demand will dictate what types of vehicles people want to buy. Does Ukraine have a infrastructure that could support the electric vehicles? It's being developed and uh, very widely accepted. Electric cars are very commonplace there. And uh, along with other initiatives around efficiency, uh, I see that trend continuing not only there, but other uh, surrounding countries and in other places around the world, it's becoming more and more popular as a cost-effective means of, of powering vehicles and doing so uh, in a clean way. So with regards to it, being in charge of IAA's international business development, when did you start expanding upon the this auto export side of the business? Because that, that wasn't, that was, you. first off, business class listeners, Dan is one of the rare gems in this world who's been at the company for what, 84 years now, Dan, even though you're, you're like 42? Almost, about 30 years, actually. Thank you, though. I um, have been doing this for quite a long time, started running auctions uh, down in Houston, Texas, and then in Phoenix. But my degrees in marketing and I, my, my passion and interest is in marketing. I was uh, vice president of marketing for a number of years. I focused on our buyer marketing for a number of years. But in 2012, I, I sat down with our CEO and said, look, we are underserving our international markets. I think there's room to grow. Let me see what I can do with it. And so um, began to work with our international markets. You know, it's an interesting story how they even developed in the first place. We introduced uh, internet bidding around the turn of the century, sometime around 2000. You know, before that, we were just local auctions around the country where we would collect insurance total loss vehicles and other um, slightly damaged vehicles. We'd put them all together and pool them together in one place 
And then the local buyers would come in and uh, they would say, okay, I'm, um, you know, Jerry's all Ford auto parts. You know, I'd come in and buy all the Fords and another guy would come in and buy all the Toyotas and people could come and kind of pick what they wanted, but they were limited to what was in front of them that week at that auction. Well, the internet of course changed everything. As soon as we put our auctions online, literally people around the world started taking notice. And within five or six years, we had a long list of countries that were regularly bidding on our vehicles. And we sat down and looked at each other and said, does anyone really know who these people are? We have no idea why they're buying them, where they're going, what's happening with them. And we should probably understand that to help those markets develop. And so that really was the genesis of everything. I know I, I took my first trip in 2006. I went to uh, Poland, uh, Lithuania, Belarus, and Latvia. I took a tour through Eastern Europe. At the time, they were buying just lots and lots of cars. And uh, just took some time to really understand who these people were and, and what the market was like over there that we were supplying so that we could better understand how uh, we fit into the ecosystem. And as a result of that, we were able to do a number of things that allowed us to achieve even greater success in those markets and others. So 2006 is when you kind of started exploring it. 2012 is when it officially kicked off. I'm curious, I, I don't know if you're familiar with then the logistical side of the of the business, of, of the actual vehicle being exported from the United States to wherever to its final destination point, you know, from 2012 to 2021, and understanding that 2020 is kind of a, a write-off year, have is it easy to export a car? And, you know, have there been any improvements or is it more or less the same in 2012 as it is now in 2021? Well, I mean, the process is largely the same. The vehicle has to move from our auction to um, the freight forwarder, you know, to a marshalling yard. It needs to be put into a container with other vehicles, and then um, it needs to be shipped to a foreign port, whether it's Klaipeda in Lithuania or in, into Lagos, wherever it goes, it needs to be shipped. So that part is still largely the same. Where I think efficiencies okay. have taken place is in the scale of the sheer volume of vehicles that are leaving the country today. Um, obviously, the, the number of vehicles that we sell has grown every year, year over year, since 2012. And, and, and what is that number out of curiosity? The number of vehicles that we've grown? Yeah, yeah we sell over two and a half million cars every year now. And so, but that has grown. I don't have a year by year um, listing of how many vehicles we sold each year, but that number has grown substantially over the year as we've added locations, added different vehicle suppliers and so forth. So with that, and as we've grown our buyer base, not only domestically, but overseas, um, an increased portion of those vehicles are selling to buyers overseas. In fact, uh, 2020, yes, for many people was a write-off year, but I can tell you that we made an exception to 2020 and said, okay, if we can't travel into these other markets, let's do some other things. Let's hold virtual conferences and let's work with our freight forwarder partners, for example, and let's see what we can do to make IAA more visible in these other countries. And Dennis, we grew our foreign buyer base by 40% last year, which is unheard of and um, really exciting for us at IAA. Business class listeners, you're hearing from Dan Oscarson from IAA. 
we're talking about the auto export business from cars from the United States going uh, elsewhere. And so, Dan, you had mentioned here that, you know, you saw an increase in 2020. We can naturally say that that was due to the fact that countries were shut down, everything had to move online, but you you saw an increase in business, you saw an increase in traffic. Were some of these, were, was there any country that was onboarded? Like, you know, was there a new country that was onboarded? And, and not just like one car was exported to that country. And so now that country is now, you know, onboarded into the IA system. But there was a country that was like, hey, there's there's 100 cars that were shipped there in 2020 and there's 200. Yeah, I don't think it's um, the fact that we added more countries per se, Dennis. I think it's more that uh, people in these countries realized that used that the used car value was better than the new car value in 2020. I mean, even domestically, we saw a rise in used car prices. And when the pandemic first hit back in March and April, you remember people initially just, they stopped driving, right? Your listeners will know this. I mean, the miles driven went down by nearly half. And of course, the number of accidents went down by half. And so that really hurt our volume initially for a short period of time. But as people started getting back on the road, as accidents started to happen again and we had more inventory to sell, what we found was that the used car market was placing a higher demand for these vehicles than ever before for people to repair their vehicles. They weren't buying new cars as much in many of these countries and they needed these vehicles and and prices went up for them. So they were in high demand. So not only did we see the lift that came from you know, higher selling prices, but also higher volumes of vehicles being sold into many of these countries. So I want to pivot real quick, because as you've traveled to a lot of these different countries, you know, I've had the chance to see some of the videos of, you know, of the presentations you've given in these countries. And for instance, I think you were in Belarus and it seemed like you were having a party over there. It's quite envious. I was like, I want to go to that thing. You know, you're combining again business and pleasure, and so I'm like, man, that sounds that that seems really cool. But on the flip side, I also saw a presentation you gave in Ghana, and the crowd seemed pretty dead faced, as if like maybe they were taking in the information, maybe they were not. How is the perception of these auto exports in Ghana? Well. In Ghana, they love the United States and they love everything that comes from the United States, including our cars. And when you um, drive around the, the city of um, Accra or you know any of the cities there in Ghana, you will see many, many vehicles that you can tell have come from the United States. And uh, it's an important part of their economy. Now, when I travel to some of these countries, yes, I will hold seminars and meetings, but I typically will break it into two sessions especially in our higher volume countries like Ghana, like Nigeria um, and Central America. We'll break it into two sessions. We'll have one session for our existing buyers and people who are familiar with the car import process and the product that we sell. And then we'll have another session for people who are new to IAA and interested in buying one of these vehicles to learn about the process and how to do it and how to sign up as a buyer and how to interact with our system. So two very different messages for both groups of people. So I'm not sure which session you saw, but uh, culturally people react and respond differently uh, in Central America versus uh, West Africa versus the Middle East. I mean, that's just human nature. 
there's that aspect. And then there's the nature of the audience and who we may have been presenting to at that time. But always interesting interaction, always interesting questions, and always a universal love of the freedom that automobiles bring. I, I guess I can characterize that by describing the streets of Lagos, Nigeria. Lagos, Nigeria is a city of maybe, I don't know, 21 million people or so there on the coast um, in West Africa. A huge, huge city and terrible traffic. I mean, they don't have the roads and infrastructure for the number of cars that they have really. And yet, as you walk around and drive around the streets of the city, you'll literally see tens of thousands of people around the city walking. Everywhere you go, there's people walking. I even joke about it in my seminars. I said, yeah, coming here, I saw these people walking. I don't know where they came from. I don't know where they're going, but they're out there walking. And everybody laughs because they know there's always people out walking. And I said, why are they walking? Do you think that they maybe would prefer to be in a car? And of course, everybody, yes, they would much rather be in a car where it's air conditioned and cool and dry or warm, whatever the case might be. And so a large measure of our success is the fact that there is a large and growing need for affordable transportation around the world. And, you know, as we all know, there's um, some number of people who can afford to buy a new car, but there's some other number of people, usually a larger number, who can afford to buy a secondhand car. And so it's these secondhand cars that enter these markets that are highly desirable. And uh, it's very gratifying to you know, be on the streets of Minsk in Belarus and to see a Dodge Challenger go down the street and know, you know what, that car probably came from our auction in the United States. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty cool. And I, I've, I've tried to put myself in the shoes of a, a member in Ghana, and I, I'm one to also kind of look like I'm just mad dogging the presenter, you know, but it's, it's more cause I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to discern all the information, right? right? I'm just trying to process it and understand it. And you certainly f saw that later on in the presentation that the folks opened up a little bit more and, and they were a little bit more, uh, you know, vivacious when they were asking questions. But I also, I'm trying to, again, put myself in their shoes and say, okay, well, if I'm going to be starting up a business, I don't presume they're going to have to deal with a lot of, for instance, franchise laws and the and the cost of setting up a facility here, at, you know, in the United States. Is that the same case in Ghana or Nigeria? Is the cost to set up a business, a dealership, a bit lower cost expectation? You know, maybe you don't have to have an official facility. You could kind of do it out of your home. Yes, the, the threshold is very low in most countries. While it's not always the same, a common thread is that, you know, for us to sell a salvage title vehicle, for example, to a buyer in another country, we need a business license. We need some proof that they are in an automotive related business. <clears throat> so it doesn't have to be a new car dealership license. That's a very different thing. Uh, we just need somebody who has a, um, a parts business or a upholstery, automotive uh, upholstery repair type business. And so with that business license, we're able to stamp titles export only. They'll never be titled or registered in the United States and they leave the country. With that, that individual can bring it to their country. They can uh, repair the car, put it back to its original condition 
and as I mentioned, drive it for a long period of time. And, and it's not always the typical dealer that you might think about. Yes, there are dealers and, and brokers who, who buy all the cars that they know that the market likes, and then they repair and sell those in the local market, or even just sell them as is, uh, you know, but they go through the work of bringing it into the country. But there's another level of buyer who, um, who buys cars himself in connection with a full-time job that he already has. I think one of my favorite stories was down in Central America in Honduras. I was giving a presentation one year and a man had some questions afterwards. And he said, um, I, I've only been buying for three or four months. I, I've bought two or three cars and I'm really just learning. Your information tonight was really helpful. It gave me confidence to, you know, to bid confidently, to know that I'm dealing with a legitimate company and that when I send money, I know I'm going to get a car. I mean, all those things. He said, those fears now are dispelled. I like what you're doing and, um, and, and we'll see how it goes. Well, the next year I went back and after the presentation, he came and he found me. And he said, you remember me? I told you I had just started. He said, I still have my job. He worked for um, a clothing manufacturer down there. I don't know in what capacity, whether he was line production, um, mechanical, or an executive. I have no idea. He just said he worked for a, a clothing manufacturer in town. But he said, I've now developed my business where I'm making almost as much as I'm making from my regular job. And he was so happy because I've been able to buy cars for my family, for friends, for other people. And it's been a great way for me to supplement my income. So here's a man with a simple job, um, took a chance and brought a vehicle in that needed some work from the United States, but it was a high quality vehicle, repaired it and was able to sell it and make some money. He's now doubling his income by doing this side job and providing a commodity that everyone would love to own. So it's a really exciting business for a lot of people. Do you know for this particular gentleman, was he paying cash or was he borrowing money? Because you know, I would think that for a lone individual, if he did properly adhere to the rules of financial management, then yes, maybe he is buying his car's cash, or maybe he does have you know good credit where he does have you know a line of credit. But otherwise, I, I don't foresee a lot of individuals like him who are going to be able to have access to a lot of cash to be able to buy these cars, even if it is one or two, and then for them to turn around and you know try to sell the car. So are you aware of his particular uh, situation? I don't know about his specifically, but I can tell you that if I were to generalize from all the countries that I've visited and the you know hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many buyers I've talked to, I would tell you that most of it is a cash business. We do require payment for our vehicles before they leave our facility. So they must be paid in full. We don't extend that type of credit, especially when the asset goes overseas, it has to be paid for before it leaves. So their cash and money is tied up in advance. And because of that, because they have to pay for the vehicle with a wire transfer right after they buy it within a few days, they want to be very careful that they're doing business with a reputable company and with reputable people. They don't want to give their money to someone and say, yes, I'll pay for it. And then they run away with that person's money. We, we, we just don't ever mm -hmm. want that to happen. And so um, it, it is very much a cash business. And oddly enough, I, I say cash business. I, I see a lot of cash as I travel because cars in other countries are, always, are often also traded in cash. For example, in the country of Jordan, Buyers would come from Baghdad in Iraq. They would drive to the free trade zone in Zarqa in Jordan to buy cars. 
and they would come with just hundred dollar bills. I, I, I haven't, I've seen more of Ben Franklin outside of the United States than I've seen in the United States. A lot of the car trade That's is done in US super dollars. Super interesting. That's super interesting. I mean, you know, you got to wonder too, right? These are these are kind of labeled as your emerging economies, right? That you're these countries that you're visiting. So it's only a matter of time till they start moving more to a, a credit system, and then eventually, eventually move to a crypto system. It could definitely happen. This would be a great commodity for that to happen with. Are, 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 I mean, is IA in a position at the moment? You know, you, you are having, for instance, Tesla. There's other companies like Square that have, that are moving into accept, uh, you know, accepting cryptos. And again, I, I guess it all depends on the country, but, you know, maybe not Ghana, Nigeria, but maybe places in Europe, Canada. Are you guys in the position? Are you guys getting to the position of looking to accept cryptocurrency? Well, I'll say this. We're a, a large publicly held corporation. And as such, um, you know, with all of our locations, we have over 200 branches around the U.S., Canada, and the United Kingdom. Um, we have a lot of priorities. And we found that for many of these countries that we are doing business with, um, they're not necessarily ready to... Um, transact and interact with us mm -hmm, with those sure. currencies. Um, but other simple solutions for the time being, such as not only just wire transfer, which is kind of the standard, but also offering additional services like PayPal or even accepting credit cards, those in certain cases are also very helpful to the buyers overseas. Okay. So first off, do you have a footprint in the Philippines yet? No, we're not in the Philippines. Um, there are a number of reasons why we are in some countries and not in others. For example, uh, in let's look at Southeast Asia. I can speak more to um, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, for example. Um, we really don't sell any cars in Vietnam or Thailand because their laws are structured in such a way that they make the import duty so expensive that it's just financially impossible to import one of our vehicles into their country. Um, they put those laws in place because they have vehicle assembly in those countries and they do that to protect their new car manufacturing. Uh, they also happen to drive on the left with right side steering. And so that makes our cars a little bit more difficult mm. to work with. Cambodia, on the other hand, doesn't have much car assembly. And uh, they, unlike the others, they do drive on the right side of the road with left side steering. So there's a number of economic, um, legal, um, you know, the laws that are in place and, yeah. and other issues that, that really create or deter that market demand. Right. Yeah. I was going to say like, like limit the opportunities right. for expansion in some of these other countries and, and not by any doing of IAA or the United States, but more from that particular country itself, That's correct. as well as the mechanics of the vehicle. Uh, well, I was, I was asking about the Philippines because I was like, man, I would love to see more of the, these U.S. cars. And furthermore, I'm Filipino and I, I dance a lot with a lot of Filipinos and I know a lot of them are trying to be, you know, these auto or these import export Kings. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe there's some, maybe there's some good information that I can get from Dan that I could give over to these people, but you basically crushed their hopes and dreams. So thank you, Dan. Uh, so I, I'm a guy that I like, I'm all about making investments. That's kind of the theme for this show. Uh, a lot of the episodes that I like to do, I like to talk about making investments. 
if I'm a guy that's going to say, you know, I want to make an investment in the future of a country's import of U.S. vehicles, where do you see some of the great opportunities in the in in some of the countries uh, all over the world? Well, we 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 do business with um, so many different countries, but there are some that are more prevalent. Um, and there's more volume than others. For, for example, let me just put the scope and scale into perspective for just a minute. Our number one importer by volume is Mexico. Well, of course, that makes sense, right? They can come across mm-hmm. the border most of the time. COVID's been a little different this year, but most of the time they can come across the border and uh, buy these cars and bring them into Mexico where they're used um, by consumers, they're used for parts, and they buy a lot of cars from the U.S. market. But the second country by volume is Nigeria. As I mentioned before, there's a lot of people in Nigeria, like 168 million people or something. And in a geographic area about the size of the southeastern United States. So there's just a lot of people that need transportation. And so as an investor looking for opportunities, um, I think the exciting thing that, that, that our company does is meet that need for affordable transportation around the world. I mean, these countries need um, transportation and people need cars. So any segment uh, in the automotive sector that would help supply affordable transportation to people in some of these developing type countries, I think would be an exciting opportunity because there's almost unlimited demand. There's always more people that want a car than have a car in many of these places. And when economies start to grow, GDP increases, it creates opportunity uh, for people to own a car for the first time. And chances are that they might not buy a new car for their first car, they would buy a secondhand car. And so those are the areas and segments that I would explore. Yeah, you know, in terms of car ownership and what it can do for the economy, also as a derivative of the GDP, you're also talking about improving someone's personal income, someone's personal uh, income opportunities for them to buy a inexpensive used car, you know, take their current job now, be able to then to take a job that's a little further away, make a little bit more money. Well, I'll just say this, that there are um, a lot of industries that are fed by the vehicles that we supply out of our auctions. When a car comes Mm -hmm. into a market that needs to be repaired, automatically there are jobs created in the transportation sector, in the mechanical repair sector, in body uh, repair work, in auto parts, in upholstery, in electronic work. Um, All of these all of these things required labor or parts from someone else. And it, it, it is a huge part of many of these countries' economies. The automotive sector is a huge part of their economy. And the number of jobs that are created truly is astounding. And um, there have been governments who have closed their borders to these vehicles because uh, they want to limit the number of less expensive cars coming in to protect that new car market. And many of these governments have also come back and changed their tune and said, you know what, we're going to reverse that and we're going to let these cars come in because we realize just how many jobs this creates. I think Ghana is one of those countries and and they have opened up um, and and relaxed their requirements 
to an extent that vehicles can go in there, can be repaired and put back into circulation for those very reasons. It creates jobs, industry, and helps GDP growth. So let's let's get a little more personal here. Yeah, Dan? Sure. We're going to, all right. Oh, look at that. You got a little smirk on your face right now. All right. So if I'm to ask you your favorite food that you've encountered in these visits to the to these countries where what country and what food genre of food would is top of mind for you hands down mediterranean in beirut uh lebanon lebanese food is fresh and delicious and uh you know keep it coming you sit down and it's all on the table it's wonderful and um just can't get enough of that. So I've enjoyed that. I, I've, I've tried a lot of different things, Dennis, as you can imagine from, um, I, I hate to even say some of the things that I've eaten. Um, <laughs> what's the weird, what's the weirdest thing you've eaten? Um, the weirdest thing I ate was in Cambodia. It was, um, tarantulas with black pepper and lime sauce. So, uh, kind of like lime sauce. So I thought I'd try it. So I had a tarantula one day in Cambodia. <laughs> Have, are you are you familiar with the, the with this reality show that Ricky Gervais produced called Idiot Abroad? I I haven't seen it, but um, I'm probably that guy. I should probably watch it. You, you, you almost have to watch it because it, immediately when you said Cambodia, it I just I had to laugh because internally I thought of uh, Carl Pinkleton, who's the star of Idiot Abroad. And he's a guy that's basically, you know, he, he's not like you at all. OK, but certainly in terms of uh experiencing new food he is like you where he was i think he was in china and he was sitting down in an open market and he's having just a bag of potato chips right and for some reason he was the he he, he said that he's the guy that sticks out like a sore thumb because everyone else was eating like a scorpion or a spider on a stick and he's 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 there just eating his potato chips you know i kind of look at it this way um and and you know when i travel my my relationship with our buyers and our clients is is very important and especially with some of the market alliances that i've formed which maybe we can talk about in a minute in in expanding our um our our, our markets abroad but you know, those relationships are very important and people are very eager to share their local culture. And right. they want you to try this right. because it's their favorite and it's their local dish or whatever it is. And I always, when I sit down, I look at it, I smell it and I just say, okay, it's a starch, it's a carbohydrate, it's a protein. It's not going to kill me. Only my mind is telling me it's a spider. So in <laughs> the way we go, there's a way to get through are there, are, it. Are there any other cultural traditions that you've been asked to partake in? Not specifically. Um, I certainly respect other cultures. I've learned a lot about other cultures. Certainly through the Middle East, there are a lot of cultural differences. Um, their days of worship are different than ours. We many times worship on Sunday in the United States. There they worship on Friday. There, there are many cultural differences, not only with regard to religion, but also um, just with family and just things that make them uniquely them. And understanding and learning those and respecting those uh, has been very important in developing my relationships with people and relating to them. So always on the lookout for ways that I can, um, you know, understand their point of view and their perspective. So you actually touched upon something, which is exactly what where I wanted to go with all this, and that is relationships, because you are in a unique position to interact with so many different people, so many different cultures, 
And the key thing is really to build relationships with these folks to be able to, you know, engender trust as fast as possible. So I'm curious on your end, what are some of the things that you've learned through the way and some of some of the practices you now embody and how you've been able to build relationships? I think the fundamental uh, characteristic for me, whether I'm in uh, Shanghai or if I'm in Lagos, Nigeria or any point in between anywhere in the world, I remember that the person that I'm talking to typically has a family they want their kids to get a good education and they want for their family to have a better life than they had. And if they are able to provide that by importing and selling cars, then I can be an instrument in helping them to have a better life. And when I approach it that way and look for common ground in terms of, you know, we all get up in the morning, we put our pants on and we go to work, we all do something different, but the pattern is the same. And when I put myself in their shoes and understand that many of their objectives are the same as my objective, and that through our services and our product and our process, they can participate in something that will help them better their life, I instantly have common ground and um, a foundation upon which I can build a relationship with these people. I want to give you a fist bump, you know, here through Zoom here. I love that, actually. I mean, that's... I think it's so key that you have to just boil it down to how can you relate to them? And it almost like takes you back to how you were experiencing food, right? Oh, it's a protein. It's a carbohydrate. That That's all that I need to register this. And then you consume it, right? Oh, I mean, I go to Ghana. I go to Nigeria. I go to Nicaragua. I go to different places. What's, what's kind of, how can I boil this down to the most simplest form in order to connect, to build those relationships? And then obviously you found that, Understanding that, again, I'll say family values, but knowing that they're looking for better opportunities, better income opportunities, that's kind of the uniting theme um, that's that's you're able to connect with these folks. That's right. And cars, there's a universal appeal, right? Everybody understands the concept of an automobile. I don't have to explain my product to anyone. Everybody knows what it is and what it does, and they all know that they want one. And so, and if they have one, they want a better one. So, you know, that part sells itself. It's just putting the vehicle in place, no pun intended, but putting a process in place for them to um, access our vehicles and bring them to their country and participate in this process is very gratifying and universally um, enjoyed by people of all cultures and countries. So did you were, did you travel at all in 2020? I did a little bit. Actually, I was in Ukraine and Georgia and uh, Nigeria and Ghana, and that was just in January and February. Uh, and then January March happened, time. and I basically stopped, um, and we focused on other ways of uh, communicating our value and engaging with buyers. As, as I said, we had great success adding new buyers, even when some of our sales perhaps uh, were down. Uh, because of a lack of product there for a couple of months um, in the first part of the year. And so I uh, very much uh, missed the travel. I did schedule a conference in October to announce the opening of a new IAA auction center that was operated by one of our Market Alliance partners there. And I, Where, Where's that? I'm sorry? 
Uh, where, where where did you schedule uh, in this Belarus. Uh, I'm conference? Sorry, in, in Minsk. So I was going to go to Minsk and everything was fine. They had no restrictions, no quarantines or um, self-isolation laws, you know, rules in place. Uh, it was very difficult to schedule airfare to get there. I changed it, I don't know, four or five times and then all set to go. Big meeting planned, advertised all over the country to come in and meet IAA and, you know, learn about this um, uh, opportunity. And three days before I was set to leave, they changed their rules and put a 10-day self-isolation requirement in place for people coming from the United States. But that's okay. I was very prepared. And with the help of our local partner on the ground there, just did a pivot and did a virtual conference. There were 115 people. They came in from all over the country. They came from as far as Smolensk, Russia. And uh, they put me on a giant, I don't know, six, eight foot screen, larger than life at the front of the room and um, gave a live introduction. I pre-recorded my presentation. They interpreted that as it was being given. It was a video that played. And then I took live questions at the end. Um, anyway, it was a combination of live and pre-recorded, but no one in the room knew that it was pre-recorded. And we pulled off a major win holding this big conference uh, with all those people as if I were actually there. And it is a big deal when we go. I mean, like I said, we, we trade on the New York Stock Exchange. We're a big company. Um, we, um, we garner attention when we travel into these places. Um, you think about a country like Belarus, we're just talking about them. It's the size of, I don't know, Kentucky. It's, it's like a state. It's not like the whole United States or China. I mean, it's a small country. And so, you know, IAA going there and doing business with a local car dealer, you know, why are you here? That makes the 10 o'clock news so we can talk to the media and they want to understand what that's all about. In fact, we even had uh, the U.S. Embassy come and introduce us at that meeting, which was wonderful because they were able to go in person and say, look, here's an opportunity for you to do business with um, a U.S. based company and uh, introduce us and it was a nice recognition. So those are the kinds of things that we're able to do. It's the kind of um, power that we have as a big company and organization. Um, and yet, as big as we are, when we go into these small markets, we are literally doing business with the salt of the earth and very simple people with a very simple business model. And we help people to improve their lives uh, each and every day uh, by buying and selling cars. It's wonderful. Business class listeners, you're tuning in to Dan Oscarson, larger than life and international man of mystery. Well, Dan, last question here for you on the show. This is where we really get to get intimate, my friend. Are you ready for I'm it? I'm ready. Obviously, you're in your home. I'm in my home. So it's perfect to get intimate, my friend. So I want to know, this is bedroom sessions where I get to get intimate with my guests here. Okay. I want to know, what would you like to accomplish with your money? that would be most meaningful to you? Well, Dennis, as, as wonderful as work is and the 38 or I don't even, I've lost track of how many countries I've been to traveling for IAA. As wonderful as that is, I know that when I'm gone, the company will continue on without me. So what's important to me is that my children love me, that my wife respects me, and whatever it costs for that to happen, uh, that's where my money's gonna go. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. actually, very practical. Yes, you want to buy the respect of your wife and your kids. No, that's not true. I mean, I I want to spend time with them. If I need to travel or you know family vacation, those are very important to me, and uh, I want to stay close to my family, and make sure that um, despite being gone as much as I am, that I'm always present for them wherever I am. But does that manifest itself, though, in any, again, any way for you to put your money towards something? I mean, it's one thing to just keep it in your account and, and, and travel, right? And that's that's all in greats. But if, if you are to spend a good amount of your money, whatever that may be to you, you know, what would you like to spend it on that would be most meaningful? You know, would it would it be something that you know, a plane maybe then for your wife and kids and you so that you guys could travel. So tell me on that level, like what would be something that you would want to, again, I actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very particular on the word accomplish. What would you like to accomplish with your money that would be most meaningful to you? Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a big lover of things. I, you know, things are just things to me. They're, you know, something that I use, but I, there's nothing that I'm in love with. Like I would, I need that boat or that, plane or whatever, like you said. Um, Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. we all need things to, you know, have around us and to get through life, but um, that's not my big focus. I wouldn't save up for any one thing. Um, I think my, my focus would be more on uh, a humanitarian level. It might be more on a uh, mission type level. Um, Maybe uh, when I retire, I would uh, serve another mission. You know, I went to Arizona. We talked about that at the beginning. Maybe I would do that with my wife and go to some country and and, and help people in some way, whether it's learning English or um, learning how to do a business. Um, I, I really have enjoyed the aspect of my job where I'm able to help people make their life better. And I think I would probably contribute and do more of that, more philanthropy, if you will, than um, anything tangible. Yes, certainly. And and I, I do love the fact that, again, this kind of ties back into your religion, this ties back into your work experiences, that this idea of, you know, traveling and helping the folks in other countries, if it's teaching a language, if it's building a house, that's something that you would like to accomplish that would be most meaningful is. to you. I like I love that. Thank you for sharing that with me, Dan. You bet. Do you do you feel a weight off your shoulder? Uh, no, no. I just uh, it's been very interesting speaking with you and um, the questions that you've had. I think for a lot of people, um, you know, the, the the aftermarket business in automotive in the automotive space is not something that people think about every day. Uh, no. People ask me what I do, and I I mean I could quip off, yeah, I'm a used car salesman to the world, but they don't really know what that is. Um, but, you know, for us, we're kind of like the ants at the picnic. You know, the crumb falls on the ground and the crumb goes away. The ant picks it up and it goes away. You know, we don't think about that crumb anymore. Um, but to the ant, it feeds an entire industry that the world never sees. And I think that's what these cars represent when they go overseas, is they feed an entire industry of auto repair and helping people to have affordable transportation around the world that we just don't typically have line of sight to. And so hopefully through today's discussion, people have a better appreciation for just how large an impact our vehicles have around the world. I love that. Amen. Thank you. That's actually a very picturesque way of of putting that, and it's very true. So kudos to you on the job you're doing, Dan. Thank you on behalf of all Americans. Seriously, thank Thank you you for helping 
us Americans as well as other countries. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. Be sure you check out the episode page to learn more about Dan and IAA as we end every episode. Cheers, prost, lachaim, kipis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastarovie, vo, salute, and saudi to the customer experience. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Wisco Weekly. If you're enjoying the show, I would kindly ask and appreciate a rating and review of Wisco Weekly on Apple Podcasts. Visit WiscoWeeklyPod.com and find all the links for Apple Podcasts to write a review. And also follow Wisco Weekly on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And if you want to follow me personally, look me up on Instagram, Wisco underscore Dennis. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.